Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Disneyland. It's a California institution and more than just a theme park to a lot of people. And with Florida's Disney World now caught up in a political fight, we want to hear what Disneyland means to Californians. What feelings or memories Disneyland evokes for you, good or bad? And your thoughts on how a 70-year-old private park run by a mega corporation has managed to become synonymous with magic, lodging itself in California's cultural imagination and the world's. Join us. If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. When you wish upon a star, as dreamers do. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's been called the happiest place on earth. And on a recent trip to Disneyland with my three young kids, I realized for some people it really is. I happened upon a marriage proposal in front of the castle. The answer was yes, by the way. And uh, witnessed a gender reveal while waiting in line for a character meet and greet. And then there's just the sheer size and scale of the park, reflecting the size and scale of the company and its cultural and economic impact. And all of it got me thinking, what does Disneyland mean to Californians? And how is it still relevant and a destination after nearly 70 years? So tell us, what are your memories of Disneyland? Have you been? Will you never go back? What does Disney mean to you? You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. And some of you wrote in ahead of the show, like Nancy, who tweet, tweeted, I feel safe at Disneyland. The world is truly fractured these days, and I can come for a day and enjoy the sounds and sights of my happy place. While I'm at Disneyland, the world's problems are forgotten. Well, we're also getting 
Thoughts on Disneyland from two journalists, and let me tell you who they are. Todd Martins is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, covering theme parks, games, interactive entertainment. He's a self-professed Disneyland addict who wrote a piece for his paper called This Is Your Brain on Disneyland. Todd Martins, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me here. Also, Carly Weissel is with us, a theme park journalist as well, and the host of a podcast called Very Amusing. That's a very cute Carly Weissel. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Carly, I saw your advice piece on what to bring when you go to Disneyland, and it started with the line, I'm a theme park journalist. Yes, that's a real job. <laughs> Do you get that a lot? People questioning whether that's a thing? Oh, big time. It's uh, it's real hard to go to any sort of dinner party or social function and try to play it off like a, a normal gig because there are a lot of follow-up questions. <laughs> well, Todd Martins, among other beats for the paper, uh, you do cover theme parks too, just like Carly. And uh, how many times at this point have you been to Disneyland, you think? Oh, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you. I've lost count. Well over oh. 100. Um, I've had an annual pass since uh, 2009. So typically uh, once or twice a month, pretty much since that era. Oh, wow. And in 2009, this was before you became um, someone who covers Disneyland and other theme parks for the LA Times? Uh, yes, I started writing about theme parks for the LA Times just because uh, I was getting a lot of questions about why do I go to Disneyland so often. So part of my <laughs> reasoning for wanting to write about Disneyland was to sort of investigate why 19 million people a year go to this place, why they spend their money to go there when they could spend that money to go elsewhere. Yeah, well, talk about that place. Ground us a little bit. What does Disneyland look like these days? Because it's constantly evolving. Well, I think, you know, it's been open now just a little bit over a year since uh, its pandemic closure. And I think, you know, that was sort of pretty remarkable because Disneyland has been pretty much a place of consistency since 1955. You know, it had closed, um, you know, for a day in remembrance of the JFK assassination. It had closed for one day after September 11, 2000, 2001, after the terrorist attacks. Um, so it had pretty much been consistently open and it had been this place of sort of comfort for uh, Southern Californians and tourists around the globe. And it's getting back to pretty much fully operational these days. There's probably a couple things left that still haven't been up and running. But, you know, they just recently brought back nighttime entertainment. They've recently brought back um, character hugs, which was a big deal for a lot of people. So I'd say the park is almost operationally back to where it was pre-pandemic. And it's massive, right, Carly? Nearly 500 acres. And it has both the original park and the California Adventure Park. What are some of the biggest and new lands that it's developed? Well, the most recent thing to open is Avengers Campus, which is at Disney California Adventure, which is the sister park to Disneyland Park. But before that, probably the the most impressive and noteworthy thing is the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, which is a large scale land themed to the Star Wars film franchise that really saw the park expand both physically and in terms of story in a way they had never done before. I found that land really well done, Todd Martins. And I know that you find Disneyland pretty intoxicating. That was one land where I definitely felt like I was immersed in what I would conceive of as Star Wars land. Yeah, I mean, I think Disneyland is a place that still represents, you know, America's most popular art form, which is uh, cinema. And it really allows us, allows us to sort of reorientate or recontextualize our relationship with our popular myths. And I think that land in particular does a pretty good job of representing Star Wars, but it's not just a recreation of, you know, the Death Star or scenes from the film. It does have the Millennium Falcon. It has a lot of signposts that let you know you're in Star Wars. 
but it also allows itself to be sort of a theatrical sort of stage. Um, you could go there and sort of play out your sort of own role. Um, and I think that's really sort of the magic of Disneyland. You know, people talk about it as an escape. And I, I tend to cringe a little at that word. I think it's more sort of like live theater. Um, you go to a place that everything makes sense. Everything is laid out for you. The narrative is like on a platter. And our brain sort of responds to that in a way that we could, as one Imagineer once told me, we could sort of swim upstream. And, you know, so I think when you can do that, that's incredibly powerful. It's an incredibly powerful feeling. It's an incredibly powerful emotion. I think that's why it sort of resonates. Yeah. Well, earlier you said that you get asked a lot why you go to Disneyland so much. So what what's your answer? <laughs> um, still sort of formulating that. Um, you know, I did talk to, and when I did that story that you referenced, um, This Is Your Brain on Disneyland, I talked to a number of psychologists and psychiatrists and human behavioral scientists. Um, and, you know, someone, a couple of people put it to me that, you know, if you think of people who go to like a Comic-Con and people who uh, cosplay, and I'm not somebody who cosplays, but it's sort of a similar sort of emotional mindset. You're allowing yourself to sort of play at a heightened version of yourself. Um, you could go to a place that uh, allows yourself to a little bit be emotionally free and sort of wear that silly hat, be goofy, be silly, um, sort of get outside of the everyday because our daily lives are filled with chaos. Um, we're trying to make sense of our surroundings. We're trying to make sense of you know our buildings, our personal lives, our professional lives. And you go to Disneyland and everything there serves a narrative purpose. So everything there just sort of makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting. You you can just sort of ride that narrative purpose that someone else has fully thought through for you. You don't really have to try to create it yourself. Carly, I was struck that you weren't a fan after your first couple of trips. And I know that there are common complaints about <laughs> Disneyland in terms of just being crowded and hot and expensive and too many strollers or too many people complaining about strollers and so on, I think was something that Todd wrote about. or Or people even saying that all of that narrative storytelling that fantasy land is almost a little too fake but why weren't you a fan initially after your first two trips well i don't know if i would say i wasn't a fan i just wasn't really <laughs> bit by the disneyland bug at first i my background is very much that i was an outsider to all of this i grew up maybe going to disneyland and disney world once or twice as a child with my family but i didn't really come back to it until I very funnily went to Walt Disney World for my bachelorette party. And since then, this has been my life for the past seven years. So it uh, it was a delayed response. But once I was kind of obsessed with these places, I was really able to see Disneyland in a completely different way from a place I casually visited a friend visited with a friend at just spending the day there being like, this is fun, but it's it's definitely not my life to being something I think about and talk about every single day. And I, I don't know if that has to do with when I visited. I was a little younger. I was in my 20s. I was living in New York City. It hadn't really didn't really resonate much with me. But now that I live in Los Angeles, now that I'm a local, it really has become something that is kind of part of my daily life and something I, I do often. Well, Wendy writes in, who is currently at Disneyland at the moment <laughs> and listening to forums. So Wendy writes, I'm at Disneyland now and I couldn't help listening in as I walk to the park. I'm 69, bought an annual pass with a good friend and we go every six weeks. It's more fun than ever, much more in the moment than racing around with kids trying to fit everything in. It's more than paid for itself, especially on the mental health side. And let me go to Terry in Newark, who's calling in as well. Hi, Terry. Hi, Terry, you there? Well, let's see if we can try to connect up with Terry. But, 
In the meantime, um, one of the things, Carly, that uh, you talk about that makes Disneyland so magical for people is nostalgia. Talk about that. Talk about how that plays into people's love of this place. Yeah, absolutely. I think Disneyland specifically because it is the very first park and it Walt Disney touched this park unlike other parks. There's so much history to it. But because it's been around the longest, there is a stronger multi-generational travel element to this more than any other park, even Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. I think that because mm-hmm. it's very reasonable that your own parents went here when they were on vacation as a child, that bringing back your own children has such a strong resonance within one's family that really builds the nostalgia factor because you can go back and you can do things that I've been back with my mom and she would point things out that she did with her dad. And I think kind of passing down those stories within your own family of things that your relatives have done that they've lived in these exact same spaces in decades prior. I think that really boosts the nostalgia factor of Disneyland as a whole. And then you add a whole other element, which is that people like me who are, you know, in their 30s, don't have children, but just really appreciate and love going to these places that we go now. And there are things that cater to us that show the night that play into the 90s cartoons that we loved the merchandise. They've been selling these VHS tape looking notebooks like everything is catering to what we now view as our childhood as the next generation comes into Disney fandom. Mm -hmm. So I think that you see it in the stores, you see it in the parks, you see it in the attractions. And really, you see it in the history of your own family. Yeah. And in the fact that it can constantly try to be relevant to different age groups is part of its lasting power. Right, Todd, in terms of its relevance or staying relevant? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that was the original intent of the park was sort of to do sort of to meld high art and low art. You know, I I also sort of think of it as sort of like the physical bookend to uh, Walt Disney's uh, Fantasia, um, sort of, you know, one of his most ambitious projects, which was to sort of meld these two different two different styles of art to bring sort of together this place where you can go that is sort of this walled garden, um, this place that allows us to sort of think we can, you know, have some sort of control over the environment. Um, Yeah. And I think that sort of has that appeal for an older generation um, and a younger generation as well. Well, Darlene writes on Instagram, I was raised in Disneyland and now my daughter has moved to the Orlando area to be close to Walt Disney World. Disney isn't a theme park. It's an experience that transcends generations. Disneyland is large. Disney World is massive. Well, we're talking about Disneyland. We're talking about Disneyland in California, what it means to Californians with Todd Martins and Carly Weissel. And we'll have more with you after the break. Stay with us, listeners. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum, and if you haven't guessed, we're talking about Disneyland. We're talking about Disneyland with Todd Martins, a columnist for the LA Times, and with Carly Weissel, host of the podcast Very Amusing, who's also a theme park journalist. And you, our listeners, are with us, telling us what Disneyland means to you, good or bad. 866-733-6786, the number, the email address, forum at kqbd.org, and you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqbdforum. I think we've got Terry back on the line. Terry from Newark, are you with us? Yes, I am. Go right ahead. Uh, I just wanted to share that we've been to Disneyland twice with my daughter and family because we have a very special needs granddaughter, and she is unable to wait in a long line and all kinds of physical disabilities and whatnot. And Disneyland really went out of their way to make wonderful memories for our family because they have things in place to deal with kids who can't wait in line, who may have a tantrum as they get to the close, you know, to the beginning of their time on the ride or accidents and things on the rides. And their staff is accommodating and just makes great memories and takes the burden off of parents with special needs kids to make them feel like they're part of the regular experience, just like everybody else. And they don't have to, um, wait in the hotel room and, and, you know, um, give up their experience because of their children's needs. Mm. The Disneyland staff knows how to do that. And they've made a really great experience both times we've been there. Well, Terry, I'm so glad you've had such a great experience. I've actually heard some similar things about uh, Legoland being great for special needs kids, too. Let me go to caller Cameron in San Francisco. Hi, Cameron. Hi there. Hi, what's on? So, uh, Mike? Yeah. Oh, my my experiences with Disneyland is uh, pretty deep. I just actually moved to San Francisco from Orange County. I've lived from Disneyland about 15 minutes, like, my entire life. So uh, it's been very integral in my entire upbringing, my friend groups. And uh, growing up, I really enjoyed going there. It was a great time and a great experience. Um, I've had lots of friends who do things like Disney bounding, which is where they dress, like, characters a little bit, like, inspired by these different characters, and they go and have a great time. And um, it's been it's very central to like the culture of Orange County and just growing up there. But as I've gotten older, I've come to see the more I would say the more unpleasant sides of Disneyland. I have friends who work there. I've experienced the park there, and it's just become um, just the capitalist undertones have become more predominant as I've gotten both older and wiser in terms of uh, how they operate. So I do have a very mixed feeling about Disneyland. The experience itself is great, but. Um, there are also many sides to it that make it a bit more complicated to think about as labeling it as the most wonderful place on earth, so a place of magic. I think that's very much a marketing scheme toward uh, trying to hide some of the uglier truths behind how design actually operates. So it's a bit complicated for me. Yeah. Personally. Well, Cameron, I appreciate you sharing those complications. And, and Todd, 
Disney has definitely made news for labor issues in the recent past, right? Uh, yeah, they've been caught caught under a fire for some of their uh, their salaries, their um, their wages, what they pay their staff. I mean, it should be noted that working at Disneyland is not a typical job. You know, it's not a typical retail job. If you're working at one of the shops on Main Street, you are, you know, on stage um, all day long. You are not just, you know, ringing up a cash register, helping customers. You are being part of the role, being part of their day, being part of their memories. You have to go like above and beyond what you know you would do at a regular store so i think you know there is a lot of a very close microscope on what disney pays its staff what disney uh treats its staff what its hours are um and that's you know certainly with with plenty of merit well again i think camera's probably not alone in people who who have complicated emotions that are kind of alongside each other with regard to disneyland uh, i'm hearing we actually have a former cast member who has called in let me go to john in san francisco hi john Hi, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, I'm a former cast member. I actually started in merchandise back in my college years and worked in almost every store in Disneyland back in the 90s. They would send me to a different store each day in the park. They, they've changed the rules about that since then. But I transferred to attractions and was a Jungle Cruise skipper. I worked uh, around the opening of the Indiana Jones Adventure, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse, and then was on the opening cast of Innoventions at the New the new Tomorrowland back in 98. Um, it had some really great experiences um, and uh, so many stories to tell. My dad said it was almost like being in the military with all, when you put, you know, 80,000 people in a theme park and watch what happens with them. Um, but I will tell you, one of my fondest memories, I would say, is just in general working the closing shifts when the guests would clear out at night and then we would walk back to our lockers back then uh, when we had to turn the costumes back in and, and uh, get out of our costumes and just walking through. And it was such a three-dimensional movie set. I mean, if, you've, if anyone's ever worked in film, you step away from a soundstage and it looks, you, know, you can see all the inner workings immediately. But Disneyland was really designed to surround you completely. And it's it's interesting, you know, I'll tell you that my partner is Japanese and, and didn't really grow up in that Disney culture as much, even though you know he had been to Tokyo Disneyland and didn't have the movie familiarity with the films as much. But I, I saw the connection when I took him to California Adventure for the first time at Cars Land. And that was a film he had seen. And to see this grown man light up like a little child and eyes wide open and noticing the tiny details in the queue, um, really kind of, it's kind of that emotional connection. And, you know, I will tell you, you know, finally, maybe on the operational side, the training there uh, is kind of the envy of other companies in many ways. They even have a Disney Institute now that, that companies will pay a great sum of money to try to learn how to train their employees and manage their workforce in similar ways. Um, I, I can tell you just as an hourly cast member back in the day, from day one, when I was signed off on, on the things I was learning, I felt so comfortable that I had demonstrated that I knew what I was doing, that whatever situation was thrown at me, no matter how crazy they were, I felt like I knew what to do and uh, definitely wow. appreciated that. It, it, the job still comes up on my resume. You know, it's still useful, even though it's not what I do now. <laughs> People still enjoy talking about it or are just interested by it, even if they're not a fan. Well, thanks for the peek that you gave us into what it's like to work for Disney. And also, Todd, that story that John was telling about his partner from Japan Disneyland is talked about as America's and California's greatest cultural export. And you kind of touched on this in terms of what the power that it has and what it communicates about the California and American psyche. Do you want to say a little more about that? Um, sure, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, Disneyland, you know, the, obviously these attractions and these lands and these uh, parks, you know, they're created by very large teams of, you know, skilled craftsmen and artists. 
but I don't think they're created in a vacuum. So I think if you look at when Disneyland was built in you know 1955, it was very much a reflection of where America was at that time. It was very much a result of where America was at that time. You know, coming out of World War II, um, entering the you know height of the Cold War. You know, we were sort of looking inward at that time. So it made sense that you know there would be a, a need for uh, you know somebody to create something that presented a more sort of uh, like a better version of America, um, a version of America that made sense. And I think that's why it immediately resonated with um, such an audience. And I think that's also sort of why it's been replicated, you know, not just in Florida, but, you know, in Paris in Hong Kong in China and Japan, um, you know, they saw it as something that sort of represented the American ideal of the American dream, but also like, you know, America cinema. Well, one of the things that's interesting, though, about Disneyland is as you talk about, you know, trying to represent a better America than it really is. It also, though, has been called out for rides that are racist, uh, for depictions of people of color in ways that very much felt like it was from the white gaze. How has Disneyland dealt with that, Todd? They can sometimes be slow to uh, change, you know, uh, the uh, they just updated, for instance, uh, the Jungle Cruise, and that was done um, in conjunction with the release of the movie. And that was a long overdue change. That was a ride that was largely from a colonialist point of view. I mean, when it was built originally, it did reference, you know, sort of uh, the Walt Disney True Adventure films. It also referenced films like The African Queen. Um, but it had sort of, it was a very problematic attraction. There were a lot of cringe-inducing scenes. Um, I think Disney's own words were of, you know, um, unsavory depictions of uh, native cultures. And um, so they got rid of those, rid of those scenes, um, created a number of scenes with more animals to sort of up the humor of the ride. That was a long overdue change. Um, a few years ago, they also changed uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, I think uh, it was sometime in the uh, 90s or late 80s when they initially sort of changed the scenes with uh, the men chasing the women. Um, but then more recently, they uh, got rid of the auction. There was an, an auction scene where you could by a, a wench for a bride. And um, that was obviously uh, an offensive scene to uh, many and also an another scene that was long overdue to uh, fix. And they sort of created that pirate into a stronger sort of female lead. Um, so they've made these changes and they've gotten more aggressive about it in the last five or 10 years. Um, there are still some changes that need to come, but the park has also been a little bit more aggressive in, you know, especially here in Disney California Adventure and bringing in festivals that reference multi multicultural views, that reference you know the films that have uh, greater a greater sense of diversity. Um, so I think they've gotten better and more aggressive in recent years, but it's true that they have sometimes been slow to change. Well, Catherine writes, my parents had the Candy Palace franchise on Main Street, and when the park opened in 1955, we had a person in the window making peanut brittle and hundreds of people stopped to watch the process. Meanwhile, we kids could have free reign in the park. As I grew older, I realized that you are never too old to go to Disneyland. The employees are extremely friendly and play their roles very well dressed in costumes to depict all of the Disney famous films. My family and I try to get there at least once a year. Celeste writes, we go there mainly for nostalgic reasons. We go on the rides and we like the new California Adventure Park, but we mainly like the main park. We went again in November 2022, or maybe 2021 is what they meant. The five of us enjoyed it very much, but it's getting kind of expensive. And I think it's just too costly and you have to book ahead online. 
Carly, I want to ask you about this. Um, mm. It ain't cheap. I was there and the entrance alone <laughs> is over $100. And if you pay for shorter lines or to hop between parks, you can easily add another $50 or so there. And, and then I've heard people just talking to me about the incredible cost of food or t-shirts or toys in the park. Can you talk a little bit about that cost? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I do want to mention, I, I think those comments are kind of intertwined because the reason we are seeing higher prices and ticket price increases year over year is because the demand remains higher than ever every single year. People really, really love to visit these places. And the reason that the prices are the way they are is because everyone wants to go here. It's kind of an undeniable fact at this point. I think that Disneyland has the thing is, at the end of the day, I think it's I personally think it's expensive. And for me, it's even a tax write off. So to say that is pretty significant. But also people are paying it. It's really the market is showing that it's priced correctly because people are arriving at the parks. They are already paying for admission. Sometimes they're paying for park hopper admission, which is two parks in one day. Then they're adding something like Disney Genie Plus or an individual lightning a la carte attraction entry, which is individually priced on top of that. So even before you get to essentials like food or soda or coffee, you're already spending more than before, more than you were pre-pandemic to simply go on rides with expedited entry. So uh, personally, I, th I think it's gotten to be quite expensive and we are reaching a breaking point when people are really going to have to evaluate if this is something they can afford to do. But also people keep paying it and the parks are packed. So it's proof that this is something people really want. Because again, to go back to the first comment, these places truly spark joy unlike anything I've ever experienced. The fact that we're not dedicating an hour to Six Flags is pretty <laughs> indicative of that, that Disney has something very, very special. And something I often talk about on my podcast is that especially as an adult, because these spaces are not just for families, not just for children, but especially as an adult, it's very difficult to find joy and to more importantly, publicly exhibit joy. And seeing a parade, seeing fireworks, these are all ways to publicly experience joy communally with other people, which is something you really can't do unless you're a fan of a sports team or anything like that. So I think that that feeling is so important and so hard to find in other locations. And that's why the ticket prices are the way they are. Well, Kimber tweets, left for Disneyland the day my divorce was final. It happened to be Christmas Eve, so I took my kids as their Christmas gift. They really needed the distraction. Forgot to make dinner reservations and had to eat dinner at IHOP after the park closed. Best trip ever. <laughs> Let me go to Nadine in San Anselmo. Hi, Nadine. Hi, just gulping down some cereal. Um, I, I've been to Disneyland probably about five or six times in my life, probably starting in the 60s. And, um, but the one that really stands out to me is it was probably in the 80s, and my son was somewhere between the age of four and six or seven. And I just have this memory. It was a day when it was not crowded at Disneyland. It was wide open. You couldn't lose your kid in the crowd. He stuck his arm straight out like an airplane and went running down Main Street as though he was going to fly into heaven. He was so happy. And it was like 12 Christmases and Hanukkahs rolled up in one. And I just always remember how much happiness it was to be there, and particularly on a day when it wasn't crowded. And I don't know if they have any days like that anymore. So that's my, I just wanted to put that in. And also, when I was, um, I don't know, like a teenager or something, I, I read the uh, uh, biography of Walt Disney, and, and that was very interesting, too. 
Oh, well, Nadine, thanks. I appreciate you sharing your experience and and what your kids were like when, (laughs) or grandkids were like as well there. And I do think that that is a, a, a reason that a lot of people end up taking their kids there, regardless of how they might feel about Disney. It, it, the complicated feelings, I guess, as Cameron put it initially, they might have about it. For example, Larry writes, I've been to Disneyland at least 70 times. I used to teach high school marching bands, so every band I've taught has been in Disneyland and marched in parades. I can't stand the place when you see it behind the scenes. It's just like any other commercial enterprise. I mostly stay in the sports bar and watch sports on TV <laughs> while the kids enjoy the rides. Let me go to Mario in Oakland. Hi, Mario. Hi, good morning. Hey, just wanted to say that, you know, we have a, our family has a very strong connection with Disneyland because back in the 50s, our dad um, uh, was the director of the art department in Disneyland on the park itself uh, before the park even opened. So as, as toddlers and infants, you know, we were able to go see the park before it actually opened to the public. Um, and and my dad had a really you know positive feelings for 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 Walt uh, at Disney. The, the the twist came when in the late nineties, um, my brother learned started finding out about like Disney Disney's business practices, and you know we're a Latino family, and we and we learned how people the girls like up families and even kids young girls in 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 Central America were doing sweatshop labor to produce like Disney, you know, toys or Disney pajamas and Disney clothing items. And, and there was just, we were part of a campaign at that time mm-hmm. about getting Disney yes. to, they could not, for a, with a month's worth of wages, an 11 year old girl could not buy one pair of Disney pajamas uh, with, with what they were being paid. So there became a campaign for trying to get them to pay a living wage to the parents so the kids wouldn't have to work. Well, Mario, thank you for bringing that up. I I do remember that campaign and the buttons that were circulated as well. Um, And again, I do think it's really interesting. People are also bringing up capitalism. And Todd, you you have talked about how Disney certainly doesn't shy away from showing that it is very much a capitalist company. Uh, no, absolutely. I think, you know, I'd like to talk about sort of the uh, cultural importance of Disneyland. And I'm very interested in, you know, you know, as Carly was sort of talking about, you know, it is very prohibitively uh, expensive for a number of people, yet people pay that money. So I am very interested in why people do that. Um, on the flip side, you know, there is a tension there. This isn't, you know, an altruistic enterprise. And while it is part of a Southern California ritual, while I do think it is as integral to Southern California as a Dodger Stadium or a Griffith Park, you know, it, it, it is not there, you know, just for uh, just for, you know, an innocent place to go. It is a money making enterprise. Um, you know, there is an interview with Walt from the late 50s in Life magazine where he talked about where he was being yelled at that the park was too expensive. So, you know, this is sort of from day one. This has been the tension of the park that it is this place of nostalgia and cultural importance, but it is also a, an American business. Well, we'll have more with Todd Martins and Carly Weissel after the break. We're talking Disneyland, and uh, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the bigger-than-life space that Disneyland holds in our collective imaginations as Californians, and we're collecting your Disneyland stories. 866-733-6786 if you want to call, email forum at kqbd.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram about what Disneyland means to you. Jenny writes, born and raised in Southern California, I grew up with Disneyland from childhood through my teens. There were many visits with my family on Catholic schools days, grad night. My first Disney visit was in utero, and I was there on my 50th birthday, co-celebrating 50 years of magic. My work team participated in the Disney Institute Professional Development Experience. I've been to Tokyo Disneyland and Disney World, but for me, there is only one true original Disneyland. Along the same lines, Kara writes, years ago, my then wife and I drove her young nieces from the Bay Area to Anaheim, arriving near midnight and carrying the sleeping girls into our motel room across from the Disneyland entrance. In the morning, we came outside, pointed across the street and said to the kids, welcome to Disneyland. The 10-year-old said, this isn't the real Disneyland, that's in Florida. I said to her, this is the one that built the one in Florida and made sure we stayed until the park closed that night, until the kids were literally tired of it. Let me go to Carol in San Anselmo. Hi, Carol. Hey, good morning. Morning. What would you like to share? I was seven years old watching the Mickey Mouse Club and an announcement came on, win a trip for your whole family to Disneyland in California. And you had to write in 25 words or less why you liked the advertiser at the time Scotch brand cellophane tape. So I actually had the mumps and I was home from school. I'm an artist person and I made a little booklet and drew pictures of things like my mother taking lint off of my clothes and I'd stick a piece of tape on the booklet. My father snoring and my, a piece of tape over his mouth to stop the snoring. I won the contest, my whole family. Seven oh my gosh, old. congratulations, Carol. <laughs> Love that story. You know, it was magical because when I went to the moon, as far as I was concerned, I believed it. 
I went to the moon. And my parents had to calmly tell me, no, no, no. That mm. <laughs> was a film, but uh, Disneyland the... will always be a very magical place oh, for me. I was me. just going to say, that's the Disney magic. Let me go to Rachel in Oakland. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. Go right ahead. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share. So my husband and I took our two kids, they're twins and eight years old, to Disneyland for the first time earlier this year. And I cannot tell you was. You know, I understand that the tickets are expensive. They definitely were. But you could tell how much work and um, they put into the design of every single ride, every single experience that they gave you. Every employee that we met knew everything about Disneyland, all of the history. They were able to answer any single question, didn't matter who we talked to. It really helped improve our experience. And, Mike, I can't, I can't talk about enough how amazing our experience well, I'm glad that you had such a great experience there, and, and I think you're echoing what we've been talking about in terms of the way that they're really starting to perfect and move into this even more immersive experience to keep up with with the expectations, I think, of, of audiences coming to Disneyland for the first time in these times. Let me go to Marissa in San Rafael. Hi, Marissa. Hi, how's it going? Well, what do you want to say about Disneyland? Great. Um, Well, I'm a lifelong Disneyland uh, vacationer. I'm 29 years old now and still go more than once a year. But it's been a little dubious to see their future because not only is there an inequity with the cost of the park and having to own a smartphone to do so many functions in the park, but there's also a strong knowledge gap, which someone like me who's familiar with all these processes of booking a reservation 90 days in advance for dining um, and then also booking a reservation to go into the park booking your lightning lane, which used to be fast pass where you could just get them for free um, with a physical paper ticket. So everything is a lot more complicated now. And if someone is just going for, you know, a once in a lifetime trip with their family and doesn't have that knowledge base, then it's just a lot more complicated and harder to enjoy the park in a way. And also more than anything, I just really miss the days of not having to be bent over my phone all day long in the park. So while yeah. I still am a fan, I'm going to continue going. It's just kind of disappointing to see those changes over the pandemic. Marissa, thanks. And I, I know what you mean in terms of the sense that it's creating different classes of visitors. Todd, is this here to stay, though? The pandemic, they reopened almost fully, as you were saying at the beginning of the show, but it, the reservation system was still in place um, when I went, and that was fairly recently. Yeah, that's definitely um, here to stay, I think, for good. I think um, and it's absolutely true that Disneyland requires a lot of planning. And, you know, Carly could talk about this extensively because she covers the ins and outs of the parks daily. But it requires a bit of homework um, to sort of make a reservation. You have to buy a ticket, then you have to make a reservation for that day. Um, then you have to buy uh, a Genie and a Genie Plus, which is uh, Genie Plus is what you have to buy. Um, so which is replaces the Fast Pass system. So it does get very complex and it does quickly prices do add up beyond the ticket price, but I think that is here to stay. And I think the reliance on mobile phones is only going to become deeper and deeper. Yeah, both Todd and the caller are absolutely right because 
Disneyland, we're really seeing a cultural shift because previously you could casually visit whenever you liked, which is why there was such a, a big resonance for it in the surrounding community. But now that you have to make reservations, it has really changed the way annual pass holders visit. It's changed the way people casually visit even with their friends and family. And it requires a learning curve, which the bulk of my job is really explaining the ins and outs of this to people. Because if you show up at Disneyland, first of all, you most likely can't get in if you don't have a reservation. And if you don't at least have an idea for what you want to do that day, you might not even be able to get on everything you want to do. So it really has become much more burdensome. And uh, I, I hope that they find a way to uh, adjust things in the future so that you can freely visit. I do think the Genie Plus system works quite well at Disneyland as opposed to Disney World where we are seeing a lot of issues with a similar program. But it Disneyland is not for the faint of heart, even though it is uh, so integral to the California existence. And uh, I know that a lot of experts out here are just doing our best to make sure the info gets to the right people. Well, Javay writes, wonder their thoughts on equity, even local gems like our own city of Oakland's Fairyland, which I think Disneyland may be inspired from, has an opportunity for low-income families to access. What about Disney? You were saying that you hope, Carly, so uh, I don't know what they do have. But Javay also wants to know uh, your perspective on what's the best time of the year to visit. And I think there is this question. If you are going to scrape the money together or make this your vacation and put your vacation funds into a trip to Disneyland, what's the best way to make the most of that? <laughs> uh, it's a multifaceted answer. So if you are looking to visit Disneyland with the, with a tight budget or you're trying to spend the least amount of money possible, I would stay tuned for if applicable to you for these Southern California resident ticket deals, which have popped up here and there. It's usually not over spring break or summer break, but other times throughout the year. I believe it's early in the year that they do it. Um, uh, Todd, do they have one later in the year sometimes or is it just early? It's usually just uh, winter into spring. Yes. Thank you. Um, and so that's a really great way to visit the parks for multiple days at a fraction of the cost. But it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's just hard. It's going to be hard going forward because uh, unfortunately, there is a lot of demand and a lot of people want to go. And I don't anticipate the ticketing system with the reservations really going away because the company plainly has so much access to data right now that I don't see I don't see why a company at the end of the day would give that up. So I anticipate we will have it going forward. But for visiting for times of the year, my favorite time of the year is Halloween time. I think Disneyland does an exceptional job with just character costuming and decor. And they retheme the Haunted Mansion to be Nightmare Before Christmas inspired, which is extremely special. And that particular overlay extends into the holiday season, which I know a lot of people do annually. They make the official pilgrimage to see all of the Christmas decor. I myself do not celebrate Christmas, so it personally, it's fun to visit, but it leaves something lacking for me because I personally feel there is not enough representation of other holidays beyond Christmas. But beyond that, if you do happen to celebrate Christmas, or even if you don't, it is a really beautiful, special time of year to visit. And I prefer it much to the hot, busy summer months. Hmm. Well, this listener tweets, I know we don't want to talk about Disney World, but I'm curious how your experts think it compares. I visited both and found Disney World didn't offer too much more than Disneyland in terms of attractions, just more resort hotels, shopping, dining, water parks, and even a big sports training facility. Todd, you want to take that first? Um, yeah, I think Carly and I probably have differing opinions on this one, <laughs> yeah. but um, I um, grew up going to Walt Disney World. I grew up outside of Chicago, so my family would take a yearly pilgrimage to Walt Disney World. 
Um, but since moving to Southern California for uh, college, um, Disneyland has sort of become my preferred park. And that's largely for all the reasons we've talked about, the nostalgia, the history, the fact that there is so much in there that it, it, it does exist from the 1950s. Um, the fact that there are so many original pieces of, of artwork, um, so much from the original Imagineers, you know, the Claude Coates, Mark Davis, Mary Blair, Rolly Crump. So you can really see the handcrafted touch at Disneyland, which um, appeals to me. Um, and I'll let Carly sort of talk about why Disney World is superior. <laughs> As you can tell, we have had this debate before many times. Um, it's funny because Walt Disney World is kind of like, if you treat the two resorts like siblings, Walt Disney World got famous and then Disneyland is really catering to its friends and family back home. Um, in terms of my journalistic career, I mostly write about Walt Disney World because it really is a national and international park. Disneyland does pull so many guests every year, but news-wise, it's really regional. It really has this intimacy intimacy to it that many other parks do not replicate. It's very singular in that facet that Californians love Disneyland and we want to know everything that's happening there. So I personally tend to prefer Walt Disney World just because it's the big show. You know what I mean? Like you people are traveling there for week long vacations. Families from England will travel for two weeks and stay there and experience everything Walt Disney World has to offer, which you don't really do at Disneyland. You can get in and out in a day. I recommend two to three. But I appreciate Disneyland for its history, for the community there, for being a local. It's something I can easily access distance-wise, and it's a really, really historical and important park. But Disney World is chaotic, and I love it for that. Carly Weissel is host of the podcast, Very Amusing. Todd Martins is a columnist with the Los Angeles Times who covers Disneyland, other theme parks, and other things as well. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, this listener writes, I grew up in Orange County, which was not very diverse at the time. Going to Disneyland as a kid, I saw people from all over the world and all walks of life. I was so happy to see the kids from all nations on the small world ride. I loved the rides and planning for the visit, but Disneyland was also a place where all the world came together. And for a kid whose family didn't have money to travel the world, Disneyland brought the world to us in its own way. Uh, let me go to Carrie in Montara. Carrie, thanks so much for waiting. Hi, thank you. I, I grew up in Tustin. I'm approaching my 60s and had Disneyland as a child in the late 60s and early 70s. And some of my best memories are my dad getting me ready for school in the morning and us eating our Cheerios and him looking at me and saying, gosh, I don't feel like going to work today. How about if we play hooky and go to Disneyland? And of course, he would have had it planned out and taken the day off. But to me, it was just something just me and my dad would do. And the, the things that I remember that, are, of course, are long gone are Tom Sawyer's Island and the clam chowder on Captain Hook's uh, boat, which was a restaurant, and the um, uh, sandwich that was uh, uh, the Monte Cristo sandwich in the Blue Bayou restaurant, and that each land had really good food, which I, I'm not even sure exists anymore the way it did um, in the late 60s and 70s. Well, Carrie, th that's, sh thanks for sharing that memory. It's wonderful to kind of walk the park with you as you're talking a little bit about some of those experiences. So one of the things that I am curious about, Todd, is whether or not you think that, that uh, you, you wrote this piece where you said that someone um, suggested that as you get older, it might be a little weird for you to go to Disneyland on your own as much as you do right now. I believe you're in your 30s, as you said, right now. When I wrote the piece, <laughs> I was in my 30s, yeah. <laughs> okay. So 
So I guess the question that I have is, do you think that's changing, though, that, that <laughs> the way that Disneyland is going at the audiences that it's that it's catering to, that it will seem less weird for adults to be as into Disneyland as kids are? <laughs> Um, I think we've seen a pretty big shift over the last um, 10, 15 years of adults um, embracing Disneyland, um, you know, single friend adult groups going to the park, um, enjoying themselves. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, one of the callers earlier brought up Disney bounding. You know, there is a big movement of fans who go to the park and sort of dress in the style of their favorite characters. Um, but also, I, th I think people grew up with these parks. And I also think there's, you know, just sort of as as expensive as we have talked about Disneyland is. Um, it's can still a day trip to Disneyland can still be cheaper than, you know, a vacation uh, overseas or a trip over somewhere else. So it is sort of a a way to sort of get out of your home, to get out of your daily life, to sort of have a vacation for a day or two. Um, and I think as we've seen um, the financial crunch of the last uh, decade or so, I think Disneyland has sort of taken advantage of that as expensive as it is that it is still sort of cheaper than, you know, a trip to uh, Tokyo. Um, so you can go to Disneyland and get a sense of a vacation. So Carly, what is the most California thing that's ever happened to you at Disneyland? <laughs> you know, Todd and I were, were talking about this. We were like, oh, what are our most like, significant experiences we've had at Disneyland? And I realized to me, Disneyland is really indicative of a community. Now that I'm, you know, I'm out of high school, I'm out of college, I am a freelancer, which a lot of more people are than ever before. I don't really, I don't have an office, I don't have coworkers, but when I go to Disneyland, I see people I know, I see people I follow online, I see people I'm a fan of. And a couple weeks ago, I went to Disneyland and I saw Todd. I walked right into Todd. And I think that that's perhaps the most California experience I've had because that usually wouldn't happen anywhere else. But this is such a it, there's such a community built into who visits these parks that you truly can go. You can drive an hour to somewhere else and see a friend of yours and run into them on the street. And I think that it, it really it really makes the place special for when you're a local to have experiences like that. You got a story for us, Todd, as well in our last minute here. Yeah, no, I was sort of thinking about that as well. I think uh, my story is a little different. I was working in the park. I was working in Cars Land, and I was sitting there with my laptop uh, trying to write a story and just sort of thinking for a moment, staring off into space. And a cast member ran out of the diner and with a milkshake in her hand and said to me, you look really lonely. Here's a milkshake for you. <laughs> and then I had to wonder what lonely looked like. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I just thought it was, when you talk about California, this idea that um, a milkshake can sort of cure all of our ills um, made me smile. Oh, well, I really appreciate that story. Todd Martins, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. LA Times columnist Todd Martins. Carly Weissel, also thanks so much for sharing your experiences. Of course. Thank you. Carly Weissel is host of the podcast, Very Amusing, a theme park journalist as well, who gives lots of advice about what to do if you are going to Disneyland. And I want to thank our listeners for sharing their thoughts, their conflicts, their experiences, and how Disney has been magical to them. Grace Wan produced today's segment. And uh, Monday, we'll be talking about digital privacy with experts that are warning that online search queries and health data could be weaponized against people seeking Abortion. So if you want to share with us what steps you're taking to protect data privacy before Monday's show, email us, forum at kqed.org, 
or send a voicemail to 415-553-3300. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Caroline Smith. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Susan Britton is our lead producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Chris Hoff with help from Christopher J. Beal this week. Our interns are Jennifer Eng and Paul C. Kelly-Campos with help this week from Stephen Chemileski. I'm Mina Kim. Have a magical weekend. You got a friend in me. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.